Welcome back. Yeah, so I'm Jackie. I'm Hope. And this is Fascism Podcast. We talk about art and fashion as a way to have conversations about culture and just have a good time. Um, we're real friends. We're not just people who come together in podcasts. I don't know why like that's important to say, but sometimes I get disappointed <laughs> when I listen to a podcast and then it's like, oh, they just like know each other through like Huffington Post or something. That's fair. Um I do feel like people are like, they obviously have chemistry. Like people are like, there's no question about it. So I think we have, yeah, I think our chemistry is palpable as well. (laughs) People can smell it, see it, hear it, especially because this is a podcast. And when I say see it, I mean like they have to close their eyes and visualize it. Right. They get the idea. We are butt ass naked, just uh, scissoring, talking on podcast. Oh my God. You're clearly trying to appeal to our over 50% male audience. (laughs) (laughs) that's very true uh scissoring doesn't really work i mean it could but um anyways that is a porn thing that's been made up uh for the male gaze clearly some guy was like why don't you just like smash them together you know like you know that's exactly what happened so hollywood magic baby yes so something that we like to do is kind of like uh like we have a lot of information Basically, we're a water filter. We're the filter system. Um, it pours in to the water filter, and what comes out is a very small drainage, but I think the same amount of water. I would say that it's a water filter that gives less water than you started with somehow. Okay, okay. Which is because we're distilling it through our lens. Yes, I need a better metaphor for that then. I guess we could we could be like you have a glass of water and then you add powder to it like lemonade powder or something and so it's something a little bit different. Sure. Uh, yeah. You okay. like that one? Yeah, but not like crystal light or something like that. It, this is like I don't know. Maybe we're like a noon tab or like noon tab. Please sponsor us. Is that like a classier version? It's definitely more current. I mean, crystal light always gave me stomach aches, and noon tabs are just like electrolytes. So. Yeah, we are the electrolytes to the system. That's like a tall order. Uh, you think so? Well, electrolytes basically help your body run correctly. You're basically telling people that we're like essential to their survival. We are sugar. We are going, <laughs> you're, we're excited to be around for a moment, you know. We just have an abundance of enthusiasm for various topics. So like we do a shit ton of research and then whatever's interesting to us We'll like go on little rabbit holes and do more research and then just have conversations about it. Basically, that's the gist. If you like it, you should give it five stars. Super grateful for the people who have been giving five stars. We're just greedy little piggies and we want more so that other people can find this podcast. Anyway, Jackie, what's trending for you? Um, Yeah, I think because it's summer, I'm a single gal. I feel like there's a trends of freedom uh for me and you know not really because obviously they're taking my my rights and y'all's rights one by one so there's not actual any freedom but i have like celebrated this sense of i'm doing whatever i want at every moment of my life except for like 
all the things that I have to do, like work and chores, but like you can't avoid those things. And do you, I mean, do you do the chores though? Uh, not really. <laughs> there you go. But sometimes I do, you know, sometimes I take it upon myself to do them because I mean, I can't live in absolute filth, but yeah, I'm just like letting go of giving a shit. I mean, I'm not, I'm always been a little bit less caring of what other thing, other people think than I would say some people that I know personally. Um, not that I don't care, but it's just like just a degree hair less, but I've really, um, felt a sense of, I'm going to do this and I don't care. I don't if, – if people want to communicate to me how they feel about the situation, I, I'm more than open to hear and, like, change. Like, for example, this Saturday, I basically ditched this dude, um, and it was fine. I was like, if he wants to communicate that he's upset about it, he can to me, but I'm still going to choose to, like, hang out with my friends before I hang out with this dude just because because I'm going to have more fun with my friends. Anyways, and I just, like – like spontaneously like doing stuff, kind of just going with the whim of things, which I wouldn't say is in my characteristic of things to do, but it's just been very nice. And I had such a great week because of the choices that I decided to make. And I was just like, I was really proud of myself for all the things that I decided on. Like, I was just like, this is a good for me. I'm going to do this. Even if it's like not perceived as productive or seen as like ideal, like I love inviting a little chaos. I love inviting... Um, I like staying up. I like being a little, I just like, like being a little chaotic and I'm just like proud of it almost. Anyway, so I'm having a good time. Would you say in terms of like the Dungeons and Dragons sorting mechanism, are you chaotic good? Oh, a hundred percent. I would think, I mean, like, I think I'm good. You know, you, this is when you get into the nitty gritty of like, what is good even mean? But yeah. Um, yeah, I would say chaotic good. Like I'm, I'm drinking, I'm not doing math. So there's that. <laughs> You're not doing meth? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I, Wait a, don't, don't moralize doing meth. It's also perfectly fine to do. I know. I'm, I'm not disagreeing with that, but I am doing coffee. I think I would be a slippery slope for me with methamphetamines, but I'm drinking a lot of coffee and doing a lot of research and I am thriving off of that. I'm really enjoying that. So chaotic good in the sense that I am not like tossing and throwing things. I'm like on my computer, just like learning and getting a, a pure adrenaline rush from yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, just being like, oh my God. Um, and yeah, making things till late, you know, making whatever the fuck I want. Like that is a really good feeling to just be staying up late, doing something that you're excited about and not giving into that adult voice in your head. That's like, you're going to be tired tomorrow. It's like, yeah, I'm going to be tired no matter what. Yeah. Because yeah. I'm, because working makes me tired. Exactly. I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to, I could sleep eight hours a night. I'm still going to take an hour nap in midday, mm -hmm. minimum, mm -hmm. maybe even a two hour nap if yeah. I can get away with it at work. I hear you. I mean, I'm medically sleepy, so. <laughs> yes, you are. She's <laughs> actually like been diagnosed as sleepy, sleepy head. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just like something that I'm, I'm also making stuff. I think it's really important. Like I am very good about being activated and, and making things. And not for any other reason, but just because I want to make them and have them around in my house. Mm -hmm. And I don't feel like, a, I mean, society just doesn't appreciate that. You have to monetize everything that you right, make. Right, right. Yeah. Got to monetize all your hobbies. Yeah. And I'm just very proud of myself for being chaotic for my own good. And since I'm making things, staying up late, just because I, I have to. I need to learn. I need to make. I yeah. need to fuck around. Um, yeah. I was just thinking recently about like if we... If we ever started doing this podcast full time, you know how they say like once you once it's your job, it's like different yeah. kind of a thing. It's like 
it, there's a, just a different feeling of like, because a lot of the time we're reading and researching and sometimes I get into that same like manic state that you're describing where you're just like, oh my God, this is so interesting. It's like, I, I wonder if we were doing it full time, like if it would feel as like intoxicating. I think it would. I think it absolutely would because you. I I think we would allow ourselves to have the freedom to go whatever rabbit hole that we want to, and that's what's the key. Mm. You know, just letting like, your brain go on its adventure. Go on the adventure that it is. It's yeah. Sometimes it's overwhelming. Yeah. I'm just like. I had the other day where I just like figured out all these connections of separate things that I've already done research of and it all kind of came together and I I almost like cried from the excitement. Yeah, I totally know that feeling. It's interesting because like I think our brains work really similarly that way and like sometimes I talk to Brian about like, you know, like what do you think about during the day, blah, blah, blah. And it's like his mental landscape is quite different than mine. Mm -hmm. Like my brain just goes all over the place all the time Mm -hmm. and it's just really interesting that like how different a thought landscape can be between two different people. Yeah. I mean, there's some people that are just, I don't know. Um, I feel like all the landscape architects that I, I'm friends with have a very similar reaction to research because that's part of it mm-hmm. is doing the research. And that is very, you can, we were pushed to kind of go down our own path in that way. So like we all have and understand that adrenaline rush of like, just manically looking over things and then finding something to do a de- like a project about. Yeah, like you have to be so inspired by something that you can create art or design about it really intensely. Like, and that, yeah, it's made me understand artists so much more because like you see that that's the process that people go through and then they're just like kind of meditating on one theme for a long time. Yeah, exactly. A dream. What's trending with you, Hope? Trending with me is hosting have been doing a lot of hosting both like like overnight guests out of town guests just people who live here I you know our house has really become like a central location even though it's like the hardest place to park ever (laughs) (laughs) that's true I've been enjoying that I think I've hit a stride like hosting used to stress me out I both love it and it used to stress me out like I think because the way my anxiety works like I am always worrying about like how I'm coming off to people or like, you know, whether I should say something or not or yada yada. And when I host, I go into a mode of like, I'm, my task is to make other people feel comfortable. So it like eases my anxiety in a way, but then hosting people for long periods of time, it's like the lack of alone time can get to me. But I feel like I finally hit my stride where like my friends were visiting and like, we were all working during the day and just kind of like in our separate rooms. Also very lucky that our space allows that to happen. There were like four of us all in separate rooms and it was kind of last minute. So I didn't have time to clean and I was like, it's just fine. You know, like it was just, and I think because I've lived with them in the past, it was just like, we're used to cooking and cleaning together and it being easy breezy and it's like summer is intoxicating. It's like you feel like you should be doing something all the time. It's like overwhelming. Everyone's excited. There's so much to do. And so there's been about like a, a process of deciding like what are the things that I'm going to actually spend energy on? I'm not going to feel bad if I don't go swim every single day, even though in two months I won't be able to. Brian and I spent like five hours yesterday cleaning and organizing like our spice rack, our mud room, just like really... It was nice to spend a day just like, not like decompressing, but like putting the house back together after what felt like a month of like. And that's like a good to do like once. That sounds like a good time, honestly. Mm -hmm. It was. Yeah, it was 
just a lot of discussions of like, is this a weekly use item or a monthly use item? Oh my God. I forgot to tell you, yesterday was buy nothing day. I saw that. Did you put anything out? No. I mean, we're constantly putting stuff out. Yeah. But I went around Wallingford as well. Another thing I fucking did yesterday and just got so much shit. What'd you find? A bunch of arts and crafts stuff. Cool. So just to add to like the unnecessary mess. But you got one thing you need to have, fellow listeners, is just a ton of shit to make things. If you want to do art, yeah. Like when my sister and I switched apartments and so I mean, whenever you move, it's like someone witnesses <laughs> your whole collection of stuff, which can be very horrifying. And she was like telling my mom about it, our mom, and she was like, yeah, Hope just has like a shit ton of clothes and like art supplies and... Not a problem. Yeah. I mean... Not a problem. Yeah. Anyway, should we get into it? Yes. Okay, let's do it. Let me grab my computer. Um, I, today we're talking about Vivian Westwood, who is a British fashion designer and activist known for new romanticism, corseting, and her association with the punk movement. One of her first forays into fashion was with former partner Malcolm McLaren, which together they had like a tumultuous but artistically fruitful relationship that led to the creation of the band The Sex Pistol, whom Vivian styled. And as Vivian pursued a fashion career of her own, she garnered attention for her runway shows that took inspiration from art and history. And then... In the 2000s, her shows began to focus more on climate change, and she started to lean more into activism. Yeah, and we're going to talk about her, give kind of like the rundown of her life and her work, and then we're going to chat with Emily Stokel of Prelove Pod to kind of like give our own editorial spin on it and talk about like activism and fashion and like the relationship between those things. Because Vivian Westwood likes to paint herself as an activist. Yeah. She calls herself an activist and a fashion designer. Yeah. And we kind of, we critique that because, and look a little deeper and, um, and yeah, just to understand the relationship between art and activism. I have a real question though. What? Do you think you can be an artist and an activist? Yeah. I think anyone can be an activist. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I, I, I think more like, I guess we can talk about this later, but it's just like complicated because like a lot of the, during World War One, World War Two. Um, and the, some of the research that I did in France was, you know, about the the smaller government fighting, not like the the grassroots kind of armies that started in France, particularly against the Nazis. Um, and none of them were ever artists. Artists were never really involved in the process of taking down the fascist state. And I, I don't know. I think there's something like Henry Matisse was definitely around doing zero things. You know what I mean? So it's kind of interesting of like the responsibility of things that we uphold, like in culture that we like Beyonce saying, like making a song about not working. It's actually like nothing and meaningless. But anyways, it's just yeah. something. I guess that's like that gets into a conversation about what activism is. Like does activism, do activists have to interact directly with the state? Or can they influence people in other ways? And does that still count as activism? Yeah. That's a good question. But we'll start, yeah, with, you know, Vivian comes out her mom's vagina. I guess I don't know if her mom had a cesarean section or a <laughs> vaginal birth, but she, she exited in Derbyshire, England. I'm going to assume natural birth because I don't know how they were, C-sections were in back in the day. Yeah, not common, but... Um, and they're a working class family. They they don't make a bunch of money. She grew up kind of low income. Low, yeah. I would say low middle class. Yeah. Yeah. And like 
she her family wasn't really focused on like scholarship and such like she was always really drawn to like literature and the arts and like I think felt like a bit out of place yeah it was working class through and through like you got a job you had kids you that's it which I find fascinating I think when I first found out that Vivian Westwood didn't come from a celebrated like rich people family basically let's zoom forward she does meet this guy um in like the end of her high school when she's going to college and his last name is Westwood what's his real name John Derek Derek Westwood and he wants to become I think a pilot that's if I'm correct um who cares about that guy to, and to be clear, he does sound pretty great. Like he was very devoted to her <laughs> and they were really into the dance scene. Like I'm really into West Coast Ring right now. So anyone who does partner dancing, obviously it was way more common back then. But I'm like, she was really into dancing. He was really into dancing. They could have had a great life together. Yeah, but she, well, she's an area. I don't know. She's way too spicy for him. Totally. Way too spicy. Um, yeah, he seems like just a standard, like good person i mean there's no there's no she doesn't ever really talk shit about him so there's that he seems like the staple parent throughout the years um and he provides some sense of like financial security and when they're married or you mean after they're married both oh for i mean not for her personally but for the children oh yeah they have Uh, one kid together and his name is ben and yeah so she has she's a mom living and uh married to this guy derek uh, Westwood and working like a middle class and she becomes a teacher she's just like and she's utterly bored with the whole situation yeah and she would like she would be a school teacher during the day and then come home and like make jewelry at night she's like always crafting she like clearly loves to create things um yeah, it says, to contribute to the household expenses, Vivian took a menial job chopping up rolls of print with a guillotine at the nearby Kodak factory. Despite Derek's kindness and great love for his new wife, she was bored. She felt that her life was frustratingly circumscribed, and she watched with envy as her younger brother, Gordon, moved into a new and exciting circle at Harrow Art School. It was through him that she was to meet the man who would entice her away from working class family conformity forever. Yeah. Gordon, the younger brother, was an artist. Like he tried to do art school. And I don't know. I think he might have been gay. I wish they talked more about Gordon a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but Gordon's just a key player for Malcolm, an introduction to Malcolm. Yeah. And so some of some of what we're talking about comes from the biography, Vivian Westwood, An Unfashionable Life. Um but a lot of it comes from other places, just FYI. Yeah. Through education does a really good 30-minute video if you ever want to, like, get a deep debrief. We're going to go on tangents here, so. Yeah, buckle uh, up. Yeah, so. But Malcolm, what did you, how do you say his last name? Let's me, McLaren. I've written it down, yeah. Malcolm McLaren is a dick. Yeah, so she meets Malcolm McLaren through her brother Gordon. Gordon and Malcolm are in art school together, and she meets him and... They have a very strange beginning to their relationship. Their whole relationship is strange. I mean, I'm mad at her. I'm mad at her. I mean, they all need to go to therapy. These boomers just need to go to therapy. Very true. Because she puts Malcolm number one before anyone else, including her children, Mm -hmm. multiple times. And it makes me infuriated because I'm just like, get a grip, woman. Yeah. And it's like you empathize in the way that like being a mother – you didn't have as much choice then to whether to be a mother or not, but, and clearly she didn't want to be, but also, you know. 
she did get married to a guy and then like she did divorce the dude. Like she was actively pr- participating in, I don't know, being a bad mom. <laughs> yeah. And so she divorces Derek Westwood in 1965, keeps the last name because, you know, pretty good last name. It's a great last name. And that's kind of wild that she got divorced, though. For I that was thinking time. that. I mean, they bring it up a couple times being like, considering that she's a divorced mom, but like in the 60s being a divorced mom, that wasn't like it is now, which was like everybody's divorced mom. Right. You know? well, and then she's like living with Gordon and Malcolm and people, right? Like she was living She does with- end up moving in with Gordon eventually and to Malcolm's dismay. Because he doesn't want her around? Yeah, he doesn't really like her. He finds her annoying. She's, she's a hothead. Dude, she like fights over everything. Her style's very teacher, like kind of slouchy, boring. She's a country folk, you know, but she just like is angry all the time. And I think Malcolm was spending like, I think he was like sleeping in the car at the time too, Mm. while they were like living in like her and her brother were living in the apartment. So she would come by and visit him in the car, like the steamy car sometimes. And I was just like, that's a... And she's like 25 at this time, too. And he was like 19. And they bring that up a lot in the book, like the age difference. I'm like, that's not a real age difference. It is in the sense of being 25 is very different from being 19. Because like every year in your 20s is just huge, just... Right. And the fact that she had a kid, like she was just in a very different life stage. Yeah. She's, and she'll, she's always kind of committed. She doesn't really partake in Malcolm's lifestyle out of ever, like being like wild and cool. Like she's always just trying to survive and like make the next dollar. So even, and that kind of showcases through her business style. Like she's just taking advantage of the moment more than actually like being a part of Mm. the message um, or really giving a shit what's going on. Hmm. Um, But, yeah, Malcolm and her meet. He's just like a virgin, I think. Mm-hmm. And she de-virginizes him. Yeah, the way they described it, it's like almost like he wa- he didn't want to give in to her. But like... It was weird. This book, you guys, a hot, it's a hot read, honestly. Yeah, the biography is by Jane Mulva or something. And like she has a lot of opinions. She... It was originally going to be an authorized biography, but then Vivian was like, nah. And I wonder why, because I feel like this is in Vivian's style in the sense of like a little distasteful, but also the way the adjectives that she uses, I'm like, she gives it away of exactly how she feels about these people. Totally. Um, and I think I'm just thinking it's not a very unbiased book. I'll tell you that. And it's I just not. feel like the writer really hates Malcolm as she should, but also kind of mad at Vivian as well totally she hates Malcolm the most but she also doesn't think Vivian's that great she'll like be like and then Malcolm said that this happened but you can't trust that motherfucker it's like dude Jane keep it together and a little bit about Malcolm okay Malcolm comes from a seamstress family like they his mom is Jewish who changed her name to something else Hmm. because she wanted to be like I don't know a stage name person well it's like also after World War II I guess she didn't want to be as Jewish sounding, maybe. maybe yeah. They didn't really tell you that in the book. Vivian's also like really into, like the, the author talks about like Vivian would hang out with all these Jewish people because of their association with the arts and stuff like that. Like it was, I didn't quite get that. I think maybe the writer might be a little, uh, I won't, I don't want to say anti-Semitic, but like a little weird against the Jewish. Because like the way she talked about his Judaism was a little off to me in the sense yeah. that I was like, I don't like how she she brought up them being Jewish, and and in a way that I was like, this isn't necessary to why to. I guess like when you're talking about Europe 
right after World War II, like maybe noting that someone's Jewish does describe a very particular life experience that they have had. Well, his mom was pretty wealthy, well off, but they had a really contentious relationship, him and Malcolm. Can I have that real quick? I can, I can, there's a quote that I'm, I'm thinking of at this moment. I should have brought my own book. But, you know, we got here at 10 a.m. Uh, and I was like, mm. Yeah, she got here bleary-eyed. <laughs> so Malcolm Edwards was born on January 22nd, so he's an Aquarius, mm. um, in a family home. Um, his parents were Emily Nee Isaacs. I don't know what that means. The daughter of a lower middle class Jewish diamond cutter. I'm just confused on how, I guess, cause you're just a diamond cutter, not a diamond seller that you make a lot of, le- lot less money, but I don't know how you can be lower middle class from a diamond cutter, but I don't know shit. And then Peter McLaurin, a working class Scott who had served as a sapper with the Royal Engineers during the war and then became a motor fitter. Emily considered that she had married beneath her. They had two sons, Stuart, and two and a half years apart, Malcolm. When Malcolm was 18 months old, Peter abandoned the family, and he eventually married five times. Um, and then his mom changed her name to Eve Edwards, and she was a good time girl and a flirt, boasting a sexual intimacy with a millionaire tycoon, Sir Charles Clore. So basically, she, like, this is where I'm confused. I'm like, where does she permanently absent? She became basically permanently absent from the family. And then um, by day helping to run the, uh, the family business, the clothing factory called Eve Edwards Limited, and by night out with her lover. So she started Eve Edwards Limited, and it's like, a f- I guess, like, they don't really talk about it, but it is, like, a pretty successful <laughs> company in the sense that they make clothes. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where he gets his, like, a, a lot of Vivian's kind of intrigue is, like, sh- her knowing that he's from this family of seamstress, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's very small. She also, like, I'll talk about this later, but she go. She went on vacation with him for once for, like, a really long time on, like, south of France, meeting up with Malcolm. And she, they all, like, she just became literally obsessed with him after this. She, like, abandoned her children mm. to go on this little vacation for, like, a month. We should also note that the way their relationship begins is that they, they start sleeping together and then she gets pregnant. Like, really early on. She gets pregnant, yeah, and they don't even really like each other still, but, like, you know, they fuck. Um, also, he spends, like, grows up with his grandma. This is the other thing. Grandma Rose, and they, like, sleep in the same bed for 10 years. I don't know why, if that's a problem or not. I don't, I don't know. I can't judge, but it is weird. But Grandma Rose really wants, like, Vivian to have an abortion, and there's, like, a whole fight. She gives Vivian money to get an abortion. And this is one of those things that, like, as you start doing research about someone, you start to hear the same snippets that people are mm-hmm. using over and over again. And so everyone's like, yeah, she she goes to show up to the abortion clinic, decides not to. And it's, a, it's illegal at this point, so it's going to be an illegal abortion, you know, risky probably. Um, so who knows what was her reason for deciding not to do it? Maybe she was like, I already have one kid, you know, or maybe she who knows? There's a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot of things going into it. But she decides not to do it, and she goes out and buys, like, a cashmere two-piece set. Yeah. I love that she just, like, doesn't give the money back to Grandma Rose. She's just like, well, (laughs) what are you going to say? Like, what, are you going to call the cops and tell them that I I spent your abortion money? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And it was a lot of money, obviously. I I don't know how – yeah. Anyways, is it legal in Britain now? Who knows? It's illegal here. Abortions are legal in Britain. That's wild. Uh, that we don't have it here. <laughs> Anyways, 
Anyways, we are Britain in the 1960s. So she, uh, Malcolm, doesn't really want the kid either because that will like slow down his like cool man lifestyle. I mean, fair. Absolutely. Absolutely. He's an art student, like a radical art student, and she's already a mom. Like a middle class mom, like a low middle class mom. So like what would be the intrigue of of settling down if you're if you're an art student having a good old time? Why would you ever want to go into lifestyle unless you like crave some sense of stability at age 20 or whatever? Mm -hmm. Yeah, usually don't. And so he basically doesn't acknowledge her first kid, Ben. Yeah. But and then their kid is named Joseph, which is also my brother's name. That's my brother's name. Well, you have you're one of five kids. The likelihood of your brother being named Joseph <laughs> it is higher. It is higher. I do have twice as many brothers as you. <laughs> yeah, and so he's like her toxic art director. Like he tells her, you know, she's dressing like a frumpy teacher. He starts dressing her. The way it's described is like he almost puts her in certain like little costumes to humiliate her, but then she loves it. She's wearing like latex tights and like I don't know sexy punk stuff. Oh, this is what I was going to say. Like, one of the things that she really loves him when they go on this vacation later on, he only has to pee once a day, and that really impresses her. Everything he does really impresses her. She was just like, I love his strong bladder. (laughs) She had it bad, dude. Dude, that's embarrassing. That's the shit that I'm talking about. I'm like, girl, get it together. That means literally nothing. He might have a UTI, actually. Yeah, dude. She, like, really looks up to him for his ideas you know he's like you know like a radical little teen who's like just super lost in the sauce of like uh the teddy boys the situationists like he's figuring it out and he does not give a fuck about vivian yeah she obviously it's quoted a lot like she likes him loves him way more than he likes her yeah i want to note also that um ben westwood is a erotica photographer and Joseph Corre, they give him the last name of, of Malcolm's grandmother, is the founder of a lingerie brand. I just like think it's funny the uh, way that he sold off that lingerie. I, I, I read a lot about them, too. And Joseph ends up burning a bunch of punk memorabilia that was like cost seven million million dollars and made a documentary about it. Because he was like, my dad could, would be so mad that punk is commodified in the way that it's commodified. Whoa. And so he like did a public burning. What a little daddy's boy. I know. And I think it, it kind of comes off. It's like, you just is this your daddy issues coming through? Like, what's going on here? It's just like, well, your mom commodifies the punk scene. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Although she did like move away from punk at a certain point, but they were commodifying it. Yeah. But I think it's the level of like having he was like having like sex pestles, anti-capitalism statements on credit card was something that he referenced. Oh, wow. That is pretty bad. Yeah. Because it's like, you know, you can sell crafts and wares and not be capitalist. Yeah. You know, so like I can see a distinction. But um, yeah, what a what a sweet little boy. I guess he's really rich. And I'm just like, I don't. Like how like he, and he talks about it too. I, he's not not aware of the situation, but it's just like he made so much money from this lingerie company. This is Joseph, the son, and he sold it off. And then he was just like, I don't ever want to build like a factory based company. I want it to be like low key. 
And he's like, and now I have that with this different brand. So I think that is the lingerie. But I'm just like, to be rich and to have all these opinions, it's real easy. I don't know. I get that. I told, I, yeah, I agree with you. I guess I also, it's like seeing how many rich people just continue to create brands that have like really horrific supply chains right. i'm glad that he's not he's he's hashtag woke for sure um but still like still being easily being able to partake in right in the wealth yeah. you know yeah so yeah malcolm's putting vivian in these little outfits she cuts her hair bleaches it it's a very iconic look uh, apparently david bowie might have stolen it yeah yeah, because she has like spiky kind of pixie cut that looks just like David Bowie's before David Bowie. So mm-hmm. Vivian Westwood was really doing it. Um, but before any of this happens, okay, so they do eventually go in on, on, on a store together. Before that, though, it's because Malcolm House basically a fucking crisis because he graduates at 25, which I'm like, damn, that's like my brother being in school for way too long. And has a, uh, has a crisis. But while he was in school, he was, like, very much an activist. And this is, like, during the 60s, late 60s, the punk scene was, like, wasn't really punk yet. But, like, if you were an art student, you were probably partaking in the Situationist, like, or read the Situationist books. Read about, like, Andy Warhol because he was the most present. Andy Warhol was a Situationist? He was part of that collaborative thought like there were writings coming out of his little factory group including scum mm, mm-hmm. and he was associated with the motherfuckers mm. which this is what I'm, I'm about to go on a tangent about the situationist that's what i'm trying to get to um basically malcolm was a radicalist and influenced heavily by the situationist as was most art students at that time and the situationist I was talking to this guy that I'm currently, quote unquote, seeing. I'm rolling my eyes because it's really not like that. But anyways, it doesn't matter. He knows French. And I said his name. And he's like, that is 100% not how you say his name. Who? Good bud. Yeah, he's like, good bud. Good bud. Yeah, and I was like, well, too bad. So sad. Guy it's guy <laughs> <laughs> He was a douchey French theorist, Marxist. That basically led the situationist like a dictator. So it's kind of funny. And he was like an artist group. And at first they were uh, critiquing art. And they did a lot of like action items that were focused on like disrupting the MoMA in like Spain or something. And like like releasing a bunch of pamphlets about being like how art is just capitalist, you know. All this stuff. And it was very focused on like it's taking from the Dadaist movement, taking from the Surrealist movement. Which like one thing I noted was like they also like the Dadaists were like kind of like what we don't need to do paintings. All the art that is needed has already been created. They were really into collage. It was like about like taking art that had already been made and like moving it around to make a new message. Exactly. Exactly. So um, the Situationists did that with like experiencing space so they were doing they were creating maps that were kind of like emotion based that were nonsensical um and you couldn't look at the map and understand your sense of place but it wasn't about identifying where you are in the grid it was about evoking emotion because i think we we wash over radical movements and just being like this they're just like anti-capitalist they're angry they're mad which yes but there's like deeper tones of like things that people 
hold on to. Like, this is just a thread of information that stems another thread of information that, like, influences people's, like, connections in their brain. If that makes any sense. Like, um, it goes deeper than just, like, being a punk. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so this time is where the maps came out. Um, and like I said, they were emotional maps and they were, like, nonsens- nonsensical maps to disrupt the urban grid. Situationist counter maps are the product of drifts or derives. I don't know. That's it's French. Practiced by Guy de Bord and his companions post World War II France. And this is from a journal too, a piece that says, from a derived point of view, de Bord explains, cities have psychogeographically contours, um, which is something I did in school. But they had psychogeographical contours, and that's just metaphysics concept of being embodied in space oh, with constant currents fixed points, and vortexes that strongly discourage entry into or exit from certain zones. To give maps more like swerves versus like angles, because like that's what he's saying. We have these fixed moments that we have. Like we, if you were to showcase where you went from 1.1a and like draw on the map, you would have a very angular map. Mm-hmm. And they were trying to create maps with more swerves, more curves, more meandering process. Um and, like, steer away from sharp angles. Situationist cartographers had to devise a form to capture the city's psychological and social as well as spatial layout. So to borrow a term from hack and buy, they need to identify temporary autonomous zones, which this is getting real heady, okay? I mean, it's already kind of heady, but just this idea that you exist in space temporarily and showing it on a spatial layout without obliterating the grid, the grids that constituted them. Does that make any sense? Probably not. But I mean, I understand the grid thing. I don't understand the temporary autonomous zone. It's like, is this an actual physical thing they were setting up or it was just like a way that they were using space in that moment? It's the way they were using space in that moment. I think they were just trying to like showcase uh, geographically the idea of existing momentarily in space. But I mean, I'm also just kind of guessing you guys. <laughs> I don't really know. This is this is heavy. I also think they sometimes I'm like, why do you have to be so annoying? Like, because they're in art school, dude. Exactly. Or whatever. I guess the theorists weren't in art school, but they were like, yeah, they're artists. OK, I'm going to read a little paragraph. This is something that they wrote about in uh, this guy's Yvonne, who was a situationist. <clears throat> it's called the formulary in new urbanism. All cities are geological. You can't take three steps without encountering ghosts bearing all the prestige of their legends. We move within a closed landscape whose landmarks constantly draw us toward the past, creating shifting angles, create certain receding perspectives, allow us to glimpse or- original conceptions of space. But this vision remains fragmentary. It must be sought in the magical locals of fairy tales and surrealist writings, castles, endless walls, little forgotten bars, mammoth caverns, casino mirrors. These dated images retain a small catalyzing power, but it's almost impossible to use them in a symbolic urbanism without rejuvenating them by giving them new meaning. Our imaginations, haunted by the old archetypes, have remained far behind the sophistication of the machines. The various attempts to integrate modern science into new myths remain inadequate. Meanwhile, abstraction has invaded all the arts, contemporary architecture in particular. Pure plasticity, inanimate and storyless, soothes the eye. 
which I think I love that. Pure plasticity, inanimate, and storyless soothes the eye. Hmm. Elsewhere, other fragmentation beauties can be found, while the promised land of new synthesis continually recedes into the distance. Everyone wavers between the emotional still-alive past and the already-dead future. A mental disease has swept the planet, banalization, which means like basically trivial living. Everyone is hypnotized by production and conveniences, sewage systems, elevators, bathrooms, washing machines. This state of affairs arising out of struggle against poverty has overshot its ultimate goal, the liberation of humanity from material cares, and became an omnipresent obsessive image. Presented with the alternative of love or a garbage disposal unit, young people of all countries have chosen the garbage disposal unit. Wow. And it has become essential to provoke a complete spiritual transformation by bringing to light forgotten desires and by creating entirely new ones and by carrying out an intense propaganda in favor of these desires. Damn, dude, calling people out for their love of appliances. <laughs> well, that was a huge discussion then because... Russia was happening. Russia was happening. Russia was starting to become a thing. And in the 80s, there was like this whole Nixon debate in the Cold War. I think that was it the 70s or 80s. Whatever. It doesn't matter. Nixon was involved. And I remember reading about like they were (laughs) Nixon was like debating with a Russian leader. I forgot his name. People that know this shit are yelling at me because it's like a well-known documented thing. But Nixon was just arguing how capitalism has created like the dishwasher machine. So women can have more time to do whatever they need at home and, and have laundry. Like, like laundry took hours with a whole day and promoting this ideal of like having more time. And they're like, actually you're and the argument was like, you're actually creating more work like having more time to do more work which is true like right. um, i mean the fact that like we used to have households where one person could work only one person was working and now it's like now we just have two people working it's like really strange that we doubled the amount of hours that people in a household needed to work in order to sustain a life exactly and in in russia at that time there was like a thought process of like uh, profit was con- illegal that was the thing so it's how do you make products equally without me? Ma- it was like this whole like re under like replanning. It was a whole new thought of planning that had never been really done before. Um, I mean, I'm sure it had been done before, but not on this grand scale of like when if profit is illegal, how do you make stuff for the masses? Anyways, yeah, interesting. This is from a Marxist perspective. So that's why I'm connecting these things because they're basically kind of calling out people for being obsessed about these ideas that capitalism has been pushed and rejecting the idea of love and a freedom of like needing material things, which I mean, I do love my dishwasher. I don't know. If someone was like, I can give you forever love or you can have a garbage disposal. Yeah, I might I might pick the garbage disposal. Right, right. You know, <laughs> where am I going to put this stuff? <laughs> where am I going to put your love? What is this love? Are you going to do the dishes for me every day? Like, yeah. Yeah, I, I like that. I like that philosophy, though. Yeah, but they, okay, so they uh, turn away from this. And anyways, they are basically very methodical punks um, that exploited uh, media through productions of manifestos, misinformation, newspaper, and hopes fave collages. This is what the situationists were doing. Mm. They were just like trying to dis- disrupt the the system consistently. And they were doing a pretty good job of it. Um, but Guy Boyd appears to be the front runner dude because I think he's the douchiest, honestly. And he's a suspected murderer. Really? Later on in life. Yeah. But who did he murder, you know? 
a well-off like movie person like they just suddenly the like he was getting funded by this movie guy like this movie producer in france to make all these really weird movies and then that guy dies or, or disappears and everybody's like pretty sure it's him mm-hmm. so i mean you're right i mean like if you're a producer, you're probably a terrible person, right? <laughs> <laughs> you, you probably deserve to die. I don't know. I'm at the point in my life where I think that there are atrocities worth that you can commit worse atrocities than murder. <laughs> Interesting. That's a hot take. Yeah, that's a hot take. And I also agree with you, honestly, because I've been contemplating. I'm like, why do we value human life so much? Um. Anyways, he made an overhaul in early '60s. Of this, I, we're not promoting murder, by the way. Yeah, definitely not. <laughs> Um, he made an overhaul in the early 60s, which is uh, the big transition. But why so many art students were, like, inclined to uh, be connected to the situation was because their earlier years in the 60s was focused on art. And it kind of, like, kept them involved, I guess. Like, kept their intrigue. But he changed the whole thing and was like, we're not focusing on art. And actually denounced... Who did? Uh, Guy to Boyd. Okay. Uh, Board. Yeah. He was just like, we're done critiquing art we're focusing only on political shit now. Oh. and he exiled like the three artists in the situationist group he also was very controlled on who could be in the situationist it wasn't like open to all it was like a very controlled group because he was like the message has to be very focused well it's like similar to the surrealists right like they had a, a, a click and they they like kicked people out yeah it, it, guys the one deciding who gets to get be kicked out and who doesn't and he was just like we're done with this art shit no more maps okay. we're done interesting and then he wrote this book, Manifesto, The Society of the Spectacular, which is like in French something like whatever. And that's huge. That's a huge book with the youth. It's like the last mushroom at the end of the end of the world for uh, our generation. No, for literally just you, me and Matt. <laughs> no, it's the academic thing is what I'm saying. Like it was the art. I don't academia. Think that that's a great comparison because it's like. The mushroom at the end of the world doesn't have like a literal cult following. It does though. People like it in a academic sense, but there's not like a call to action that people That's are fair. surrounding around. That's fair. And anyways, all the art students are obsessed with this. That includes Mark. But by the way, Anna Singh, if you're listening, we, we, love, you. we love you. You're not listening. She's in the Indonesia right now. Yeah. She's just she's disconnected. Maybe she just says anything to get out of interviewing us. Yeah, we tried to get her on the pod. But uh, she said, and no. she was like, sorry, I'm going to be in Indonesia. I won't even like have a cell phone. I'm like, oh, OK, Anna, sure. You'll say anything. Yeah, we know we we hear what you're saying. <laughs> no, but she probably is the you know, she's an anthropologist. Anyways, basically, this book calls for students to uprise and demand that demand the impossible is like the a motif or the, the motto of of this book. And in London, there was this cultural mutation in the situation group called King mob and that's how like mark got familiar with the writings of a bunch of these people that were kind of thinking like this oh sorry malcolm i keep on calling him mark um but that includes malcolm in this group he's like being introduced uh to these writings of the situationists but also of like new york people called the motherfuckers which also were influenced by the situationists and the King Mob was also part of that cultural mutation for, off from the situation. So people were being very inspired by them at the time. It's the 60s, yo. Everybody's just ready to revolt. And their publication often took the form of like uh, detour and pop culture images, such as the posters of the Luddites, um, 69, in which Andy Cap, the stereotypical northern working class cartoon character, Andy Cap, which I, 
I don't know. I don't know anything about this, but whatever. And shoots policemen in in this image. And below a text reproduced from the 19th century Luddite broadside. Okay. I'm going to try to do this quote. And it's in Old English. And it literally makes no sense how it's written. All right. God's Are you ready? I am going to inform you the there is 6,000 me coming to you soon, and then we will go and blow up all about whose laboring people can't stand it no longer. That is my impression. <laughs> that was like, I feel like it started out as Old English and ended as like uh, Southern. <laughs> I, it, but like the way this is written, it's like, instead of I am, it's like I ham. Maybe mm. I, maybe I misspelled that. <laughs> <laughs> and then but coming is spelled c-u-m-i-n-g like old english like mm. like ejaculation coming but i think people would use coming that spelling back in the old old oh, days interesting. yeah and people spelled p-e-p-l-e just very interesting but they're talking about i mean we've talked about the luddites who were blowing up vandalizing uh, ruining machinery ruining machinery in protest of the fact that their jobs were being automated by machinery they were uh, textile workers and so this is kind of echoing a similar pro-labor sentiment yeah pro uh, well actually kind of more like anti-labor as in like let's not work as much <laughs> well they're like very anti-capitalist they're not anti-labor like abor- labor as in like not getting paid well but they're just like working is stupid yeah yeah working is part of the man man anyways okay so motherfuckers were an inspiration and offshoot in new york and they're really fucking interesting, and I kind of fell in the hole with them. The motherfuckers declared war on New York's artistically picketing MoMA and dumping trash on the steps of the Lincoln Center, all in the spirit of culture exchange, offering garbage for garbage. The group's wildness and willingness to take personal risk during a 1967 anti-war rally, they broke into the Pentagon and were beaten to a pulp, Whoa. fed into King Mob's confrontational street politics, rolled away from Parisian avant-gardism of the situationist. So the situation is we're not very like physically violent, but the motherfuckers were. So the king mob kind of like we're like, OK, we're going to be we're going to have the situation as ideals. But we're also going to have the motherfuckers like attitude toward the streets. And that's where like Andy Warhol comes into play because he was kind of uh, friends with the motherfuckers. And the woman that tried to kill him was part of the motherfuckers. Valerie Solanas. Yes. And she wrote Scattering Corpse. What is it called? Scum. The term scum appeared on the cover of the first edition from Olympia Press as S period, C period, U period, M period, and was said to stand for Society for Cutting Up Men. Solanus objected, insisting that it was not an acronym, although the expanded term appeared in a Village Voice ad. She She was not stable. She she probably just said things all the time, you know, and then... But yeah, she was also part of a group called Scum where it was just her. (laughs) <laughs> like she was just like the only one part of it hell yeah army of one yeah exactly anyways the british uh situationist maria was like the he he ran the motherfuckers okay and the british situationist uh showed support for them so that led to their basically the situationist guy deployed being like we're not claiming you Sorry. I am the captain of this team. So. Yeah. Well, they weren't focused on the message, which is just like idealism and I don't know, not being violent and or I don't know. I don't really understand why they hated the motherfuckers. So were the situationists anti-violence? They weren't necessarily anti-violence, but they weren't direct action. 
there are a lot of like theory based and critique. They're like like Marxist, like Karl Marx. I mean, it was just very like it was theory based and punk. But like the motherfuckers took the theory and then like did shit. Gotcha. And an example of that um, that combines with their direct action was with social activism, feeding the homeless, housing teenage runaways. Standing up for the Lower East Side community against the notorious Ninth Prince Police. So they were just being involved. King Mob termed themselves gangsters of the new freedom. This is like the London offshoot. They were chaotic and often unwelcome presence at various uh, nominal revolutionary events, giving what white cis men activism energy is how I put it. One thing that is that King Mob really hates is culture, aka the commodity which helps sell all the others. Even though they were influenced by Godard or Debord, Guy, Debord, whatever, how you ever say his name, um, they considered him just another bloody beetle because he was so cultural. Like he was just not doing direct action shit. So they were just like, he's just another fucking bloody beetle. And that was kind of like an insult because they hated culture so much because it sold it, sold capitalism. Anyways, and the elite of cultural consumers who looked at the at the avant garde or the political underground for shook or novelty were just as duped by the spectaculars as any mass media watching suburbanite. This is when the writer gets all meta that I was reading and he points out that that included us because we were reading about King Mob and um, I was reading about King Mob and involving myself in the culture and knowing and identifying all this and reading the situation as theory. Therefore, we're partaking in the culture. And then yeah, we're definitely guilty of that. Yep. A hundred percent. And that but we're part of the problem. I mean, was he, he was doing the same thing? The writer? Yeah. Yeah, but he was just pointing out that was King Mob's philosophy. This is what Malcolm was part of, by the way. This is the group that Malcolm. Which one? Which group? The King King Mob. Mob. Okay. This is, this is why it's important because like his philosophy was rooted in pretty radical thought process of being anti-culture, anti like pretty much anything that the state stood for. Though an offshoot of King Mob, a little like a smaller offshoot of King Mob, this is where uh, Malcolm gets really, really involved and him and a group of art students barricade their art school in, on June 5th, 1967. Um, and obeying the situation as dictum, demand the impossible, they just like stop doing school, refuse to leave their school. <laughs> which I think is great. Corden uh, College of Art. This is while he has a kid, by the way. Right. So he's fully not there. He's doing this stuff. Right. And then they issued a list of demands through a series of press releases because this is over a month or something. This is like over some period of time. And I live for this. I love this energy. I'm here for it. And one of the things that they requested, because they were demanding for the impossible, was to sculpt in gold. And I don't know if you guys know that, but that is impossible to do. So it's a funny little cute thing that I liked, you know. You liked that? Yeah, because they're like, it's tongue in cheek. They knew that that wasn't going to ever be met. And they're just, they're just being assholes. Yeah. I don't. Yeah, that kind of annoys me. Why? Just because they're like, you're like. Because they're just like self-righteous teens or like young people who like think that everything is stupid, but their reaction to it is like to demand no material change for anyone. They're not standing up for anyone oppressed or in need. They're just. That is 100% fair. angsty. Yeah. No, that's fair. And 
Jane Mulvog. How do you say her name? Dude, I don't know. I've been calling her Mulvage. <laughs> I love that. She would probably agree too. It was more fun to revolt than to study. And hedonism, as much as idealism, underpinned many student cries for revolution. The fervor of the protests waned with the onset of summer holidays. Fuck yeah. <laughs> they were like, you know what? We had a good run. You guys want to hit the beach? So basically, Mark was just an absentee dad. Malcolm. Oh, Damn it! Malcolm was just an absentee dad. I don't know why I came out getting confused with that. Because it's like McLaren. Yeah. McLaren. It's a lot of M-A-R's. Anyways, uh, because he was just like having too much fun. And I, I think I like the attitude. It is fucked. Like we need to be asking people. Like there needs to be some social activism to your being a punk. Um, and these, this is very white male energy, like I said. But it is like a way to get out of like doing schoolwork, basically. Uh-huh. uh-huh. And I'm, that sounds like, like you're hanging out with your buds, yeah. just, just like wandering summer. around and talking about how everything sucks. Yeah. And Vivian was too busy to partake in any of this. She was like, no, I really have to make money. I have two kids now. Mm-hmm. And eventually Mark pursues a revolutionary, took him to the south of France because his friend, they were going to go to Africa. And so he drove down to the south of France and then he couldn't leave because he didn't have his passport or something. Jackie understands that life. I, <laughs> I've been forgetting my license everywhere like an idiot because I switched purses. And then like I slowly started to put my other stuff in my other purse. And I'm like, I'll leave and be like, oh, of course I need my card. I never think that I need my license. So I just keep forgetting about it. You're like, I'll bring my debit card. Money talks, baby. Exactly. My dollar fifty that's in my bank will show them. They'll They'll let me in with that. But yeah, so he's like, supposed to go and then his it doesn't work out so he's just kind of stuck in the south of france while his friend like joins this i don't know revolutionary group in africa and he's just like waiting and then he gets like really bored because he doesn't he doesn't have any friends he's not he's just like homeless hanging out on the beach um he starts writing vivian vivian basically abandons her children leaves them at a daycare and then comes and visits him for like the first time she's like ever left um britain and goes to france and they have a great time they're like camping yeah they're camping and this is like some of the happiest moments and this is like the moment i think that ties vivian to him forever Mm. well until they until he dies because he does die but wait malcolm um, spoiler alert malcolm's dead wait malcolm's 100 percent dead they get divorced before that. Are they? I don't even know if they ever get married. They don't married. get married, but I swear I just saw an interview with him. I mean, not that he couldn't have died after. <laughs> no, he's dead. For sure dead. Okay, sorry that I have to no, look at it. Look just, it up. I want to know when. April 2010. I will say he did not age well. He looked so cool with his curly hair when he was younger. And then as an old person, he just looks like a normie McNormerson. <laughs> yeah, I did Not find... to speak badly about the dead, but... I mean, he really wanted to keep an open relationship with Vivian because he was just like, I mean, I might fuck somebody else, but just like he wrote about, he was ta- he would talk about how just no one came around. And I was like, because you're not actually that cool. I mean, he seems kind of cool. <laughs> like, no, I but I feel like, like if personality wise, I bet he's a fucking annoying. I would, I don't know if I could stand around him for more than like a minute. But some girls like that. Oh, obviously, Vivian's fucking obsessed with it. Like, it makes, I mean, I'm just like reading this book being like, you need girlfriends. Like, well, yeah, I mean, I'm sure it was hard to find people that were like her. Although, no, she could. She could have found people. She could have had friends. She didn't. She really bought into like love, like romantic love. Um, She also like 
like to just be alone and do her crafts, you know? Yeah, 100%. But like she lo- she would do anything Malcolm said. Right. It's um, upsetting. Yeah. So, okay. So eventually, you know, Malcolm needs to get a job. And he and Vivian take over this boutique. Seems like kind of by force, like they just sort of end up at King's Road, this kind of like edgy alternative vendor area. And they just like stake out a store for themselves. Literally, he, he just went out there and was just like, I hope I meet somebody so yeah. I could figure out where I could sell my stuff. And he dies. He meets yeah. somebody. Yeah. And they name the store Let It Rock. I mean, it's it's him and his friend. And they want to cater to Teddy Boy subculture, which is this like British youth who are immersed in rock and roll. It's about rebelliousness. Well, let's focus. It's focused on American style rock and roll, too. That, really? Yeah. The, I mean, rock and roll was kind of exclusively American, but they talk about it in the book a little bit. But like the style they're gearing toward is like old 50s American aesthetic. Right. Very rooted in the 50s. It's this nostalgia that I was like weirdly surprised about because I'm like, we're nos- like only people in the 2000s can be nostalgic. But it's like they're in the 70s, like very nostalgic for the 50s. And they're wearing draped jackets, pencil skirts, leather, clunky shoes. And it was mainly a British youth subculture. And they were interested in rock and roll and um, wearing clothes partly inspired by the styles wore by dandies in the Edwardian period. The cuts were really important. Like the fitting was mm-hmm. why where that inspiration came from. It was more about like is American rock and roll influence hair like kind of the vibe. But the fitting in the tailoring was very key to the it, the teddy boy like that w- yeah. which cross reference with that dandy yeah. look so after world war ii male youths in delinquent gangs that's like what wikipedia said who had adopted edwardian era fashion um they were sometimes known as kosh boys or edwardians but the name teddy boy was coined when the daily express <laughs> newspaper report headline shortened edwardian to teddy which i'm like how did that happen yeah can someone explain that this part a, it was a reference to king edward the seventh and in post-war britain like you had rationing continuing to affect the fashion industry and men's tailors in london devised a style based on edwardian clothing helping hoping to sell to young officers uh, being demobilized from their services, but the style, which featured tapered trousers, long jackets, similar to post-war American zoot suits and fancy waistcoats, didn't actually like sell with the target audience. So tailors had like piles of unsold clothing. Um, so to recoup losses, some um, like suburban working class youths adopted and adapted the look. And zoot suits are like a very again American cultural like latino cult like community it's a very niche interesting aesthetic and i feel we should did like an episode on that yeah totally i was getting some inspo for that too but so okay so then they're hunting like for vintage to sell in the store and it's very like you know a lot of americana ephemera like really unique kind of store vibe and then they start to kind of like run out of vintage to sell so vivian starts making reproductions so she's like getting vintage pieces and like making patterns from them sewing reproductions with like you know whatever modern fabric or whatever as um and you know she knew she sewed her own clothes already and that was like pretty typical at the time but now she's starting to to sell stuff at the store um it's still really like malcolm's thing she's just kind of like behind the scenes at home sewing and then um she's not like he doesn't really give her any credit for this like he's at the store just being like yep this is my stuff and then yeah he's a front man uh he's like the he talks to everybody she's like in the back 
Yeah. And then things start to get a little more BDSM. She's Vivian's designing bondage trousers, rubber dresses, stilettos with spikes. Well, they just get over the teddy boy look. Yeah. They're right. just like, we're fucking over this look. Yeah. Yeah. They do that a lot where they like kind of move from aesthetic to aesthetic. So in 1974, and that's the only like three years later, they rename the store Sex. And it's like really only prostitutes, people with underground sexual fetishes and young proto-punks that like had seriously edgy street style that would Famously named after Rihanna's Sex With Me. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) So two years later, they rename it Seditionaries, Clothes for Heroes. It was similar to sex. The clothes resembled motorcycle gear and fetish wear. This is when they start making like t-shirts with controversial logos and prints. Yeah, this becomes like the kind of their thing that they continue to do throughout. It's like make a... t-shirts that are controversial which like it kind of seems like they invented the graphic tee they invented punk the aesthetic of punk right i mean there's got to be somebody else that might have inspired but like essentially vivian westwood created that aesthetic that we identify as punk i just think it's interesting that like it's so normal for us now the idea of wearing t-shirts that display a message like that we've all people have always express their class through their clothes whether they want to or not but this is like a very intentional expressing your views through your clothes and so I think they really piloted that it's not always cute like a lot of it has like swastikas on it wait what yeah they had like swastikas on the shirts which she said was them just trying to tell the older generation that that they thought the older generation was all fascist but I'm like that's a kind of convoluted way to do it yeah, it's real fucking dumb. And also, like, no, she wanted to just sell stuff and people were just trying to be controversial. It reminds me of surrealism and in, in how shock-oriented it is. Yeah, for sure. That's exactly what – Vivian Westwood is, like, just literally trying to make you buy things, like, with – and she, I think, puts a lot of, like, emphasis of, of behind, like, what she created as a meaning toward it. But you're just like, no one's going to look at that and get what you're trying to say. Yeah, I mean, I think she was truly counterculture and she truly was – wanting to she was reacting to mainstream culture Mm -hmm. but yeah it's it's not always insightful a lot of it's not insightful well okay for example like she made a t-shirt with boobies on them Mm -hmm. like the well like we see a lot of those dresses that have the boobies like you know and Mm -hmm. like it looks like a scan version or Mm -hmm. something it was like a t-shirt with titties on it where the titties would be on your shirt Mm -hmm. and it says to be best worn by men and i'm like i don't hate it but i thought it was interesting that she it was like only it was like a t-shirt made for men just to be controversial to show men with titties but i was just like wouldn't it also be controversial for women to wear that too right right yeah is this when she pinned the chicken bones to the t-shirt to spell rock at some point she goes out to restaurants and like collects chicken bones and then pins them onto a shirt. Okay, so sh- the Teddy Boys shop was called Let It Rock. The the first shop that Vivian and Malcolm had was called Let It Rock. And eventually closing it to like I said we said and then what were the Too Fast to Live, Too Young to Die, which is so long. That's when they kind of start doing the motorcycle look and they cl- close that down and then they open sex. And yes, that is when they start putting like she gets she starts getting real weird with it and has chicken bones that say rock. And she also like uses some of her kids like toys and puts it in dye and like rolls it around. She like they go to New York City. They're starting to get like 
more acclaim. She hates New York, by the way. Yeah, she hates. Well, because it's just like Malcolm's. It's like she has to. It's Malcolm's vibe. Yeah. And it's like they're just going to a bunch of parties and she's not into it. And but she does get inspo. Um, and some guys like you should use pins, Clo- not clothing pins, but like what is it safety called? pins, safety pins. And the rest is history. The rest is fucking history. Y'all the safety pin and punk culture is like united forever. Um, and she created that. She like had a bunch of safety pin looks. I mean, like she was getting really, I mean, at the time out there with the DIY-ness kind of um, look that the, that would basically influence the punk generation. And while she was also out there, there was a comment made by another famous designer about her designs in particular that was written in the newspaper. And she was like really appreciative and like excited. And like somebody commented being like, it's very clear that she was focused on becoming a a full-time designer at this point. Which like fair enough. I mean. Fair enough. But it wasn't, um, it's to say that her focus was to win the game of being the best designer. Yeah. And she does. I mean, so, so she buys in fully is mm-hmm. what it is, what it comes down to. And that's why she is the way she is now. Yeah. So Malcolm McLaren's also into music. He starts managing the New York Dolls and Vivian designs some of their outfits. And in general, like people in, in rock were coming to the sex boutique for their clothes. And so Malcolm would just hang out and like recruit talent um he literally handpicked the members of the band the sex pistols and you know the rest is history they get very popular and they were just hanging around the shop sex and he was like hey you want to be part of this band right and so vivian is dressing them there's a show out called the pistols now that really talks about that but yeah john lydian who is a member of the sex pistols says malcolm and vivian were really a pair of shysters they would sell anything to any trend that could grab onto yeah, and like the the biographer who writes about her definitely kind of spins them in that way where they're just sort of like, now let's be this aesthetic, now let's be this aesthetic in there. I mean, they get bored and that for one, which I get. And yeah, I guess they're trying to sell stuff. Jordan was also like a shop assistant at the time um, at the at the sex store. And they're the one that should be credited with pretty much single-handedly paving the pa- uh, pavement uh, for the punk look. Jordan, the member of the Sex Pistols? No, uh, they're Jordan Mooney, also known as Pamela Rook, was, it, like, was a model and, and actress that worked with mm. Vivian Westwood. And Vivian Westwood definitely was part of like creating the punk look. But I think like Pamela Rook had the aesthetic and was like inspiring Vivian to make stuff mm. and like was making stuff with her. Basically, mm. so like... Pamela Rook is the person that is like third, like it goes, Malcolm is the front guy saying all, he's like the Elon Musk. (laughs) Just that's our one mention of him per episode quota. Yep, exactly. He's like promoting lies about like the shop. He's just like promoting it in a way that's not completely authentic um, to like, as businessmen do. And then there's Vivian Westwood that's like, making sketches doing the designs and then there's Pamela Rook who's like living and and also like doing the work um most of the work one would say because they are the seamstress assistant and anybody that's assistant is probably going to do most of the work but like embodying the punk look um and making and helping create the punk look um with Vivian a little bit about Pamela Rook well she was also known as Jordan Mooney why did she have two names 
hell if I know. <laughs> but at this time, everybody knew her as Jordan. And when Jordan wa- first walked into, which th- this is where the sex shop was, was on 430 Kings Road, London. That, that became a, like a famous spot. They were wearing gold stilettos, a see-through net skirt with a white bouffant hairstyle. And they were only 14 at the time. At the she time, was 14 years old? Yeah. Oh, whoa. Um, and there wasn't a position at the time, so I got the job um, in Harrods on the third floor in a place called Weigh-In. A few weeks later, I then got a call from Michael Collins, who was the manager of sex, asking if I could come in. Malcolm had been in New York with the New York Dolls when I was hired. So she that's when she was hired. Rook uh, commuted for two hours each day to London from Seaford. She recalled that her punk image caused problems for her. Uh, commuted for about two years. I had some really bad dues on the train. I had tourists trying to pay me for my photo. Worse than that, mothers saying that I'm upsetting their children and deboshing them. And how dare I get on the train looking like that? Somebody tried to throw me off the train one day, literally out the door. So British Rail told me to go sit in first class and get out of trouble. In the late 70s, she served as an early manager for Adam and the Ants, recording the track Lou about Lou Reed as a guest lead vocalist with the band for BBC Radio. And... In the 80s, she managed the band Why Boy Awake, in which her then-husband, Kevin Mooney, shout out to Kevin Mooney, Mooney had previously been the bassist in Adam and the Ants. But yeah, so she was just like very uh, involved in the punk scene, very uh, a character that existed, you know, and no one really knows about. Interesting. She brought the aesthetic. She's basically why the punk aesthetic exists, yeah. Thanks to her. And the Sex Pistols, as you probably know, you know, the sex store became very famous and ended kind of gruesomely with Sid Vicious and his girlfriend. Do you know this story? Mm -hmm. Sid Vicious was, and Nancy, it's a movie, Sid and Nancy. But um, Sid Vicious was, had a terrible life um, and just basically was out of control heroin addict, like out of control heroin addict. And Nancy, his girlfriend at the time, was also deeply involved in drugs. And they both murdered each other. How did they murder each other at the same time? I forgot. They, I think they both stabbed each other a bunch. Ooh. You know, it's interesting. We don't hear about Vivian doing drugs during this time. She really stays out of all that riffraff. It seems because like, she right? she really just was like, I, I, she didn't want to be poor anymore. I mean, if you have the drive and if you're not, some people have a problem he grew up around drugs too. Like Sid, Sid Vicious, his mom was like a raging, like his mom was selling him drugs. Yeah. So she had the advantage of like not having an unstable upbringing. And then she's also, it seems like kind of content to like witness and be around the young, cool people and then just like be inspired by their aesthetics, sell them clothes and then just go home and sleep. Like it almost reminds me of Anna Wintour in that. So like I did draw the comparison of like both her and Anna Wintour were like born around the same time in England. I realize that's not like that similar, except that they're both in fashion. But um, it seems like they both really liked to be around cool people doing cool stuff. And then they would just like kind of feed off of them. Exactly what she did. She was inspo. She liked the idea of being around the people that were doing all that stuff. But she she saw, I think, a money opportunity. But she didn't have any confidence. Like, that's the thing about her. She didn't really have any confidence, and Malcolm really helped her have the confidence to do the things that she actually wanted to do and explore. She quit her uh, – she was a teacher up until they started to – they opened their shop. So And then that's when she started to become a seamstress full-time. And they were, they sometimes lived together, sometimes didn't. Malcolm preferred not living with her. <laughs> 
Um, she was like a fucking slob, and he was like apparently very clean. Oh yeah, yeah. It's always surprising to me when people like that are clean, but it, I guess it shouldn't be. I just want to make sure that I'm right about the Sid thing. Yeah, it was like a double suicide, maybe. Anyways, they like killed each other. Um, Sad stuff, but okay. So next time we're going to talk about Vivian's foray into runway fashion and creating her own fashion line, the the work that she's really well known for, and then um, her her activism. And then we're going to be joined by Emily Stokel, and we're going to chat with her about what what it means to be in fashion and to be an activist and um yeah kind of like what we think about vivian's role as an activist conversation kind of breaks down how vivian has painted herself as an activist and what that actually means Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um i also do want to say that vivian and malcolm had a very we've mentioned it but like very tumultuous abusive relationship Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um and he was pretty terrible father and partner um, and was very distant, but would like if he came home and she was like snuggling with the kids, he would go irate and freak the fuck out and basically controlled Vivian on a level that's just like very sad and depressing. Mm-hmm. Um and so next episode we'll watch her break free and go do her own thing. I kinda. She breaks free and then goes from relationship to relationship and then she just the patterns are repeated is all I'm going to say to that. But yeah. she does become her own brands. All right. Okay. Love you. I love you. See you later.